So, Kim, we've landed our colleague and friend Deepak Malhotra to visit with us today. Among other things, here he is a Harvard Business School professor, but he's got a novel coming out of all things, The Peacemakers, uh, which may not be quite as uh, uh, stretch as you might guess because Deepak has taught negotiation at the Harvard Business School and written about it prolifically uh, over the last 20 years while he's been with us. So I'm eager to hear many thoughts just going into this, Kim. I think it's terrific that Deepak's work in negotiation is leading him so centrally into thinking about leadership and creating opportunities I expect he's going to share with us to help his students make that same kind of transition. So Deepak, I'm so glad you could uh, join us and uh, you've known Kim for uh, a while and you and I go back, oh, you've been at Harvard Business School for quite some time. When did you arrive? What was the year, Deepak? You know, I showed up in 2002 and you were there and you were one of the uh, people I met on my first day on my visit. Uh-huh. Memorably good. Uh, if I'm not mistaken, we were in the old Baker Library and your office was near the stairs, I believe upstairs, perhaps next to, I don't know if it was George's office or someone's. Uh, but we had a really nice conversation and, and I really enjoyed it. And I ended up coming to HBS. So, so Kim, we're the negotiation organizations and markets group. It's not just negotiation. It's organizations you teach adaptive leadership and so so forth. And I'm hoping that we're going to get both negotiation and leadership uh, and other things into this uh, conversation. Deepak, what, what are you teaching this academic year? This academic year, I happen to be on sabbatical, but just before I left for sabbatical and right after I come back from sabbatical, I'll be teaching uh, the new course I launched last year, uh, which is called War and Peace, The Lessons of History. It's actually got a longer subtitle, The Lessons of History for strategy, leadership, negotiation, policy, and humanity. So uh, I, I always try to overpromise and then try to work it out. Definitely going to be getting into negotiation and leadership with a title like that. Deepak, you know, I, I think of you as a negotiation person, obviously, uh, but what drew you into the uh, question of history and war and so forth at a business school? You know, uh, for many years, uh, I've spent a lot of my time outside of HBS thinking about the ideas related to war and peace and armed conflict. Uh, I spent almost all of my free time studying the issue, and I do some pro bono work with governments that are dealing with armed conflicts and intractable or protracted armed conflicts and thinking about how to navigate those situations, especially from a negotiation standpoint. And so for many years, I thought I would do something with this in the uh, classroom as well. And my initial belief was that I would write a book about it and then perhaps one day launch a course. And then about uh, a year and a half, two years ago, I came to the sudden re realization that I had it wrong, that I should build the course first, use that as an opportunity to learn even more from the students and from the act of building the course, uh, what should actually go in the book. So about almost two years ago, I announced the course. I hadn't written a single case for it yet. I had no idea what would go in it, but I announced it. About a month after that, uh, I woke up and realized that I had a lot of work to do. So then I spent the next six to eight months building the course and uh, launched it in last January, and it ended right before COVID hit us. So, Kim, I don't know if you know this, but there you kind of skipped by it without pointing to it. You have did some work in South America advising on peace and so forth. 
you know, in a broad sense, obviously, that's part of the uh, negotiation portfolio. But where were you working and what were you doing? The work that I do in this area, uh, and it's all pro bono, is actually with uh, a good friend of mine. His name is Jonathan Powell, who was the uh, former chief of staff to Tony Blair. He was also the lead British negotiator on Northern Ireland. And after he left political office, he started an organization called Intermediate. And what he does through this organization is he advises heads of state uh, and other entities on ending armed conflicts. And so all the work that I do in any part of the world is actually through Intermediate and through, through Jonathan. He and I speak uh, relatively often, and we discuss whatever problems are going on. And if there's anything that I can add strategically, uh, any insights that I can add to what uh, he's advising these people, then he takes it with him. And that's sort of been my way of leveraging his great ability to be speaking to the final decision makers and the fact that I have a lot of constraints on my time being a full-time faculty member and a, and a parent of three kids. Uh, that seems to be the best way to leverage you know, those resources. We're going sideways a, a little bit here, Deepak, but I, I'm, I'm wired to my headset here. But I could go to my bookshelf and pull off a Jonathan Powell book. He'd been involved in the troubles in Ireland and switched his views about negotiating with terrorists. Um, he believes that they ought to be at the table. That's right. In fact, the title of his book is actually Terrorists at the Table. I think that's the, the name of the, uh, the original book. I think for uh, the U.S. version or maybe the other way around, they changed it to Talking to Terrorists. But in any case, the idea was that, yes, uh, if you want to solve a problem like this, you need to talk to everybody that's involved in the problem and then think about how you create a path from where you are today to an endpoint where maybe you can resolve these issues in some way other than war and fighting, which in many cases hasn't shown a good outcome. So that makes sense, Deepak, as you describe it, but it's also a controversial proposition. What's the kind of response that you get from taking that perspective? Well, there's two kinds of reactions, and I think you're probably hinting at both of those in, in what you said and how you said it. One is, of course, is it going to work, right? So, so there's some people that will shake their head and tell you it's, it's useless, it's, it's meaningless, it's a recipe for failure, because usually they're thinking about the conflict that they know best, maybe in the country they're from or the region they're from, and they know how many times previous attempts at negotiation have failed. So they're just uh, not, not saying you shouldn't try, they're just thinking it's not going to work. And then there are some people that would say it's perhaps immoral or unethical even to do so. These people have blood on their hands. They've committed all sorts of atrocities. And is it even right to be negotiating with these people? And I can understand both of those. Uh, if it was easy, it already would have been done. If uh, anybody could just walk in with a few more negotiation ideas than the last person or was a better communicator in some way, this wouldn't have been going on for as many decades as it has. And the longer it goes on, yes, there, there is a lot to consider when you decide to talk to somebody on the other side. Uh, but I would differentiate between the other side in lots of ways, uh, not least of which is thinking about are these people themselves potentially considering a way forward that involves putting violence aside? And if so, uh, it's still going to be a lot of hard work, but it seems to me hard to not attempt to do so for me, simply because the number of people that might die going forward is just a cost I would not be willing to accept. Your PhD was in organizational behavior, is that correct? That's right. So uh, I understand that you've 
taught negotiation at the Harvard Business School for quite some time and, you know, extremely well, I might add. But what from, if you will, the business school view of negotiation, from looking at the kinds of cases, doing the sorts of exercises that we do, is relevant to these bloody uh, disputes that uh, you've been advising on, and vice versa, has your experience the last couple of years in that field informed the teaching that you do, if you will, about more conventional negotiation? The way I teach negotiations, and, and I assume the way many of us teach negotiations, is we sort of distinguish, maybe we use different words for it, but distinguishing between principles and tactics. Uh, the principles that we talk about are, are near universal. Uh, you know, if we talk about the power of framing or thinking about process, not just the substance of negotiation, or we think about a learning mindset, these are things that are principles. Now, when you're actually negotiating, you're using tactics. You know, what do you say? When do you say it? How do you say it? To whom do you say it? And in my view, the principles generalize quite well across cultures, across industries, and across domains of negotiation and conflict. But the way in which you take those principles and manifest them in a tactic in what you actually do then varies widely based on the situation you're in and on the institutional context within which you're operating or the culture in which you are. So do you want to control the frame and be mindful of what the frame is in every negotiation? Yes. You want to consider negotiating process before substance? Yes. But how you actually go and do that can vary. And what I would say is the, the things that I learned thinking about negotiations in the business world and advising uh, businesses for a very, very long time helped me develop those principles and gave me some facility with how do you take those principles and apply them in different contexts. So that when I went into this other field and started working with Jonathan, he could recognize some things that were familiar to him, but also some new things that he hadn't quite thought about, but which might be relevant to the conflicts and negotiations they were doing. But then it goes in the other direction as well. You start dealing with things that are just really ugly, where there's just, it's not just about dollars or cents, and it's not just about deal terms, it's about identity, and it's about justice, and it's about peace. All of a sudden, other things become more uh, salient to you, and you realize that there's actually some application of that in the business side as well. And so, you know, when I teach family business negotiations, you know, we have a families in business course at HBS. Occasionally, I've taught some negotiations in it. I'll often start out by saying, you know, we're going to be talking about negotiations, family businesses. Uh, you know, I usually teach negotiations to businesses, and then I do some work on armed conflict and negotiating with, with insurgencies and terrorism and very, very difficult situations. Family businesses are somewhere in the middle of that spectrum. And, you know, you always get a chuckle because everybody understands exactly what you're getting at, that some of those elements of identity and respect and non-financial concerns and a long shadow of the past and uncertainty and ego issues can exist in a lot of even business contexts. So when your students uh, sign up for the course, it sounds like they may have some inkling really that those dimensions of a negotiation are gonna be important to understanding what the possibilities are, but by thinking about uh, this very uh, specific context, but then uh, extending it out to thinking about family business. What's the most surprising thing that's happened in your classroom so far, Deepak, as you've been introducing business school students in the main, I guess, to yeah. thinking about war and peace? 
when I started the War and Peace course last year, I had absolutely no idea how any of these classes was going to go. There was maybe two sessions that I had taught previously in, in different negotiation courses, but all the rest of them, the other 12 were completely brand new. And so every class, you know, went either decently close to plan or nowhere near plan. The one that was probably the most shocking day, we were doing World War II. We, we did two days on World War II. And there was two things that were that, that really took me by surprise. Uh, one, I had set aside a certain amount of time to talk about the decision by the United States to, to use the atomic bomb on Japan, on a city for the very first time. And the question that was raised was, you know, should they have done that or should they have found a different way of trying to uh, deter the other side and, and try to reach some sort of agreement or an end to the war? And I thought it would be maybe a 10, 15 minute conversation. And I, it was like, I mean, not to over sort of state the metaphor here, but it was like I dropped the bomb in class and people were getting emotional, people were uh, upset. Uh, it went on for the entire rest of the class, like maybe 50 minutes of discussion and the class ended and there was absolutely no good resolution or framework for thinking about what we had just gone through. So I had to start the class the next day, just sort of revisiting it. And I spent that whole evening thinking about how do I put everything that we've talked about today in some format that isn't just sort of an interesting discussion, but something that maybe provides some level of insight. So, so that it really took me by surprise. And I think one of the reasons it happened was uh, up until then, we were sort of moving up in history. We'd gone through, you know, the Peloponnesian Wars and we talked about World War I. We got to World War II and all of a sudden there were students in the class who knew people that had been affected by it directly. Someone's grandparent had died at Pearl Harbor. Uh, there mm. were a number of students whose parents had been in, uh, grandparents or granduncles and aunts had been in concentration camps. There was someone whose grandfather had been in Hiroshima when the, the atomic bomb was dropped. And he didn't die, he was a little bit on the outskirts, but was affected by it. And all of a sudden people are telling these stories. And I just hadn't expected that level of relatability to show up sort of so early in the class for these young students, but, but it did. Um, I, I think you know, it, it can be good and bad, right? So the right amount of emotion and relatability and, and heat in the classroom can really uh, help people care about the subject more and focus more, et cetera. But unless it's managed well, it can also sometimes make it that people are just confused or upset. So I think that that to me was uh, sort of an interesting experience. And, you know, uh, I'm pretty sure next year I'll get that part better and some other part will surprise me. Deepak, let me jump in here. Uh I was unaware of your experience in, in this, in the class. I've mostly been teaching negotiation at HBS, but for five, maybe six years, I taught a course which I inherited called The Moral Leader, which read uh, mostly literature, plays, and things of that sort, but we read a little bit of history, and one of the classes was, in fact, on Truman and the decision to drop the bomb. The feelings were just as strong there. We have an international uh, student body at HBS. Maybe at that time, 10% of my students were former military, mostly, but not all from, from the U.S. So at some point, uh, I'd love to compare notes with you on that. But this has also made me think of something else, Deepak, and that is that you have a tendency, and I may be flattering myself a little bit, I have a little bit of it uh, myself, of 
trying new things. You commit to teaching a course, and then you realize I'm going to have to work hard to put it together. I've done that, done that, and sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. But now you're trying something entirely new. Uh, you have a novel, not a history, not a textbook, but you have a novel that's uh, coming out imminently called The Peacemaker's Code. I, I'm sure our listeners want to hear about it, but I'm also interested in in what you're bringing to it from your teaching negotiation and how it is further, in the same way that your experience in South America and other parts of the world, have informed your teaching. So that's a big question. You can chew on any part of it that you, that you want. You know, it is the thing that is most on my mind these days as I sort of polish up the, the novel and, and send it out to print, and it, it should be available on February 24th is the launch date for it. It'll be available on Amazon pretty much around the world. The Peacemaker's Code, you know, what's going back to the sort of general theme we've been talking about and, and trying different things. I, I discovered a little while ago that almost nothing I do anymore as part of my job or in my career is in any way a linear progression of or easily predicted by what I started out doing when I interviewed with you and joined Harvard Business School. Uh, you know, I was a negotiations org behavior person working on trust and trust development and contracts. And now the work that I do, I do work on armed conflict, as, as we discussed. I teach a course on war and peace. I do work on gun violence in the United States and, and how we might be able to address it. I do work with doctors who are having difficult conversations with, with uh, patients with terminal disease. Um, and I've written a, a novel now. N the thing that they all have in common, I think, is that every one of them, I can trace back to a conversation or an email or a call in which I decided to just say yes to something that I could have very easily said no to. So much so that it makes me think about all the other things I might have been doing right now if I had said yes to a few more things. I mean, my day is completely defined by all these projects and these uh, ideas and these ways of thinking about my role as an academic that are just not written down in the job description. Certainly, I mean, you know, writing papers or, or publishing books and, and teaching, broadly speaking, of course, that, that is what we do. But, but the domains that I find myself interested in, and I think the Peacemaker's Code actually came out of a conversation I had with this uh, young man named Zach Perkins, who is a CEO of a company in the Boston area called College Vine. And I'm an advisor to them, I'm on their board. And he and I were having a strategy meeting right before the COVID shutdown. And he just happened to drop in. You know, I, I have a, an idea for your next book. If we have time at the end, let's, let's talk about it. So in my mind, I'm thinking, okay, he's an entrepreneur. Uh, he's probably going to think of something like negotiating for entrepreneurs, which is an idea people often give. So we, we get done talking and we had a couple of minutes. I'm like, well, what do you have in mind? And he says, <laughs> he says um, so my roommate and I were talking last night and and we raised the question, if an alien spaceship landed on Earth, and we knew nothing else about it other than an alien spaceship has landed on Earth, we had no other information, and we could only send in one person to go inside and try to figure things out, who would you send? And I guess they were discussing this, and he said, you know, we, we decided that we would send you. And we would be really curious to know what would happen. How would you plan for it? And, and what would be your strategy? And, and, and I kind of laughed and, and sort of nodded along because, you know, it's actually a really cool hook 
But of course, I have zero interest in writing something that sounds anything like that. Uh, Sci-fi is not my thing. So anyway, we ended the conversation. But over the next four weeks, I could not get the idea out of my mind. Now, of course, it evolved and changed and all sorts of things started happening. But a month later, I was like, you know what, let me try to write the first couple of pages of where and the sort of that, that seed of an idea is pushing me to go. And then I wrote the next day and the next day and the next day. And then I wrote for uh, about 85 days straight. And I had a 150,000 word novel. Along the way, I had about 20 people reading it, maybe 15 people at the time, uh, giving me sort of feedback. And I loved it. And what ended up happening was I had originally planned to write my book on war and peace and start that this last summer. So I had all these war and peace ideas going on. I had this hook from Zach. I had this time, partly because of COVID and partly because I just wrote from 11 p.m. to 3 or 4 in the morning every night, just myself. And what ends up happening is this book is a novel and it's meant to be fast paced, suspense, mystery, twists and turns. But embedded throughout are all these lessons that came out of this class on war and peace and strategy and negotiation and sort of the human condition. And so the main character in this book happens to be a historian who's brought in to help deal with this really big problem. And through him, all sorts of real insights and lessons get woven into the story, but it's still meant to be first and foremost, a fun read. And so again, you know, if I hadn't had that conversation, if I hadn't said yes to that meeting and hadn't said yes to that discussion, and then, or if I just dropped it afterwards, there would be no book. And I couldn't be more delighted than to have this book at this point. Just to be sure that people understand, this is The Peacemaker's Code by Deepak Malhotra, uh, available very soon from uh, Amazon. Kim, I'm mindful of the clock here, but uh, any last comments or questions uh, for Deepak? So Deepak, just listening to your uh, saying yes as a, uh, a principal uh, to mm-hmm. so much of your life and work, is there a leadership lesson in that mm-hmm. for the students in your class? Yeah, you know, um, depending on how we define leadership, and, and certainly you would be more of an expert on thinking about how, how to think about these ideas than I am. But, but I'll tell you what, what, I, what I do think is generalizable here, and, and maybe it comes in sort of two pieces. Um, the, the one thing that I learned in, in my life, this is just through sort of experientially, is that I am not okay with limiting my sense of self uh, because of my circumstance. And, and so when I was working at a consulting firm uh, in 1996 or so, I didn't last very long. And the reason is because I felt like I would go to work, I'd have a game face on, I had to be a consultant. And only when I got home did I get to really be who I am. I was me with my friends. I was me when I was reading a book. I was me when I was joking around. I was me when I was you know, doing all sorts of things. But at work, I had this game face on and it just didn't sit right with me. And so I decided at that point to get into the habit of doing something that I've advised a lot of my MBA students to do since then, which is to quit. I gave a talk to graduating students some years ago where the most memorable thing that people tell me about since then is I told them to quit early and quit often. And I made the point that, you know, it's not always hard to identify that something is not quite feeling right, but it takes a lot of guts to quit doing what you've been doing and staying on the path you've always been on and and, and sort of pursuing those things. Uh, I personally think that quitting takes a lot more guts than, than not quitting often. And so being able to sort of identify that either your work or your environment or your job description is limiting 
your sense of self or your sense of identity, and it's forcing you to sort of start seeing yourself a certain way, to me, that's not okay. There's more to everybody than we get to express at work. There's more to everybody than we want to enact in, in, our, in our lives. There's more to everybody than, you know, the channels we usually are given to share with others. And so even if you can't find a way to switch careers or switch jobs or, 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 or you know, revise your job description in a, in a very substantive way, it doesn't mean you should lose sight of those other aspects of who you are. A part of you is not being expressed, is not getting an opportunity, but it's still who you are. And if you can find other avenues and channels for doing that, I think it just makes you a much, well, A, a happier person, a more fulfilled person. And it probably allows you to create value in society in the way you most would like to do rather than the way you're necessarily doing at this moment. Wow. That's a terrific close uh, this. We need to get you back at some point, uh, Deepak, but thank you so much for joining Kim and me on Agility at Work. Kim and thank Mike, you. thank you so much. So much for the time that you spent with me. It was great talking to you both. Wow, Kim, that was something. You know, we could take any small bit of it and uh, have wonderful ideas to play with. Uh, I'm not surprised because I've seen Deepak uh, teach and lecture and so forth. He is uh, he has so many great ideas and he models them. Uh, that's the thing. It's you're getting it on uh, at least two, probably more dimensions. What what was your thought, Kim? You know, there there is a leadership lesson, if not two or three, in his comments. You know, to be open to your own experience, to be willing to learn to be willing to challenge yourself and to uh, find joy uh, in all of that uh, came through loudly and clearly. And uh, what a rich and wonderful career. What a, an, a, a way to approach the classroom. There's a lot in his class, I'm sure, that his students will find unique about their experience at HBS. Well, great to be with you, Kim, and we'll get together again soon. You bet, Mike.